For now I will go straight to my matter, in which you may the double sorrows hear of Troilus in loving of Cressid, and how that she forsook him ere she died. Troilus and Cressid by Geoffrey Chaucer. Troilus and Cressida is one of Shakespeare's lesser known plays, and I kind of understand why. The ending is not the most satisfying. However, Shakespeare did not come up with this story. Chaucer did, or at least Chaucer wrote it down. Of course, Shakespeare adapted the story for the stage, but the core elements are there. The key difference between Shakespeare's version and that of Chaucer's is that Chaucer was making a clear statement about courtly love, the idea that loving someone brought you closer to the divine. Shakespeare's play does not have such a clear message. In fact, by shortening the timeline and making the characters more blunt, Shakespeare seems to have an almost nihilistic view of the situation. All the mushy love stuff is stripped away, and we are left with harsh reality. Shakespeare adapting source material is nothing new. However, this example is notable because of what changed. Today, Eli and I will be discussing Troilus and Cressida. So strap on your armor, we're heading to Troy. Hello, and welcome to Breaking Bard, a Rape Good Scholar podcast. I'm your host, Sarah, also known as Ripe Good Scholar on a growing corner of the internet. I am here, as most times, with my husband, Eli. That's me! Uh, who is here to learn about Troilus and Cressida today. One of the Shakespeare plays I know nothing about. And yes, that preposition was at the end of the sentence, on purpose. Just because you've been fighting penance on Twitter today. Yes. Doesn't mean you need to fight an imaginary pedant on the podcast. Anywho. Yeah, I know nothing about Troilus and Cressida. And since you know nothing of Troilus and Cressida, we'll get started with a summary of the plot. So it takes place during the Trojan War, during a, a short period, basically a couple days over the Trojan War. Okay. The main plot, the title plot, Troilus and Cressida, is a love story believed to be based largely on Chaucer's poem, Troilus and Cressid, which, from my understanding, plot point for plot point, that's where he got it from. Characterization's a little bit different, he shortened some timelines, but basic plot points are all from Chaucer. Alright, so classic Shakespeare steel. Yeah. A little bit different, though, because he did shift characters in some interesting ways which we'll get to so basically when the play starts troilus has already been pursuing cressida for a bit of time no specified time frame is set but he's been in the process of wooing her okay when you said pursuing i was like is this in a wooing sense or in a terminator sense a wooing sense okay dear Shakespeare, it's not Terminator. Now he's working with Cressida's uncle, Pandarus. Pandarus? Yes. Yes, That's I know. That's a great name. Pandarus is kind of going between the two, and Troilus is like, oh, why isn't this done already? And Pandarus is like, you have to take your time with the ladies. And Troilus is like, no, I don't want to. And anyway, then Pandarus goes to Cressida, and he's like, Oh, isn't Troilus great? He's so great. He's just the best. And Cressida's like, eh, he's okay. Mostly to annoy her uncle. (laughs) 
Um, well, I, I like her already. Yes, she's she's pretty hilarious. She's pretty like she's very quick witted. Well, that's fun. And so then Panders finally gets them like together in the same house. And wait, they'd never been in the same building before. I guess not alone. Man, old times were stupid. Yeah. They're at Cressida's house, and they confess their love to each other. Oh, she does love him? Yes. Well, yeah, so she admitted that in an earlier soliloquy. But now, Cressida was of the belief that men enjoy the pursuit of a woman more than they do having a woman. Okay, that may apply to some men, but I want that idea to die. So they they confess their love to each other, and Troilus is like, oh, why were you playing so hard to get for so long? And Tr- Cressida's like, because you're a man, pretty much. <laughs> and, the- <laughs> and then they get kind of married. So they get married in the sense of in front of Pandarus, they say, I love you and I want to marry you to each other. And then because they have both agreed to marriage in front of a witness, they are essentially married. Okay, so I remember this from college. That that was basically how Elizabethan marriage law worked. If you both said, I want to be married to you in front of someone, that was it. I think it was pretty much a way to, like, speed up the sex process. Yeah, yeah. You don't want to, you know... Well, and it's it's it wasn't just Elizabethans like Edward the Fourth. That was how Richard the Third claimed that his marriage was illegitimate because he had said in front of witnesses that he would marry this girl and they slept together, and then he went back on that, which wasn't allowed because he was essentially married. Ah, uh, yeah. And that's how Richard the Third stole the throne. But that was a previous podcast. Anywho, so it was basically like they were common law married. Yeah, and so they decide to consummate the marriage. Go teams. Woo! This was Shakespeare for how sexy the movies get. Doesn't have a lot of outright, and then they had sex scenes. I mean, Romeo and Juliet. Yep, that's the only other one I can think of. All's well that ends well. Anyway, we're getting off track. What? Us. So they consummate the marriage, and now, in order to understand what happens with Troilus and Cressida, we have to go back to the greater setting of the Trojan War. Cressida's father had abandoned Troy, and apparently his daughter, to go side with the Greeks. Um, In Chaucer's poem, he explicitly says it's because he had a vision that Troy would fall. They don't really explain that in Shakespeare. So he is with the Greeks. And he goes, hey, you have a Trojan prisoner. Could we exchange this warrior Antinor for Cressida? That's a bad trade. Yeah, yeah, it was a bad trade. But anyway, they do it anyway because the Greeks make bad decisions. I mean, the Greeks made bad decisions should just be the subtitle for the the Iliad and the Odyssey. Yeah. I mean, besides the, the horse... That was a pretty good decision. The horse was a good decision. Good go on that. Uh, <laughs> Everything else kind of de- Dedicating ten years to trying to get Helen back? Probably dumb. Yeah, that was stupid. Helen, hashtag uh, everything. So the Greeks agree to trade this prisoner for uh, Cressida. The news 
comes to Troilus and Cressida the next morning. Ew. Yeah, so basically Paris knows about the deal. Um, Troilus is Paris's brother, by the way. Oh, so he's Priam's son. Yes, he's one of Priam's sons. Hector, Troilus, Paris are the three that feature. Cassandra shows up for a hot minute. Poor Cassandra. Yeah, she pretty much runs in and is like, Troy's gonna burn to the ground! And everyone's like, oh, that crazy Cassandra. So Paris is apparently aware of where Troilus is. So he sends Aeneas and is like, hey, go get Troilus out of Cressida's house before the Greeks show up there. K-thinks B. Well, one Greek, Diabetes. So Aeneas shows up and is like, hey, Troilus. Cressida's gotta go. Cressida's all distraught. And Troilus is pretty much like, there's nothing we can do about it. I'll come visit you at night, wink, wink. And she gets traded. That's so, a bad plan, too. Yes. Now they're separated. Um, she's with the Greeks, being herself. Uh, makes fun of Menelaus, because he should be made fun of. This is a stupid war. Yeah, yeah, he's a dummy. Then back, we have to hop back to the Trojan War aspect. All throughout it... Achilles keeps showing up. I literally think just because Shakespeare is like, it's about the Trojan War, we have to put Achilles on stage. Because Achilles is pretty much just there to be like, oh, I'm in my tent and I'm mad. That's what he's like for most of the Iliad, too. Well, yes, but I, I just I'm, like, I'm just they keep going on it and it doesn't make it anyway. I'm just saying it's super on brand. So Hector challenges the Greeks to a one-on-one duel. They're trying to get Achilles to do it, and he's like, eh, don't care. So they get Ajax to do it, who is Hector's cousin. He's somehow related to Hector. So they fight for a hot second. They have a good spar. And then Ajax is like, I'll keep going. And Hector's like, I won't fight my cousin anymore. Well fought, cousin. And then they all feast together at the Greek camp and pretty much just, like, pretend they haven't been fighting, like, seven years of this war at this point. Nine years. That's a fun war. I gotta be honest. Like, yeah, he- like, it's just like, oh, Hector, come to my tent. Like, Agamemnon is like, Hector, come to my tent. Please. Hey, let's, let's have a play fight and then eat together. And I'm like, I feel bad for the peons of oh, these yeah. wars. Anyway, so Troilus tries to seize the opportunity. He gets Ulysses to help him take him to where Cressida is. And that's when he sees Diomedes is like, Oh, come on, Cressida. Give me kiss. Love me. And she's like, Oh, I kind of want to, but I can't. But I kind of want to. Okay. <laughs> and, you know, good for that's, her. That's the last we see of Cressida. Seriously? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so then there's a battle. Um, I think maybe she pops in during the battle at one point to, like, tell Diomedes who Troilus is. But anyway, Troilus and Diomedes fight. No one dies. Well, no one dies except Hector. Hector dies. The play ends with Hector dying. Wait, the play... What? Yeah. He dies in a battle? Yeah, pretty much. Alright. Yeah, they kind of cut out the whole, like... I kept waiting for, like, oh, is Achilles in this? Because now Achilles has to get mad and go fight and kill Hector. But Hector just kind of died. It was almost an afterthought. Interesting. But I think I think that was done because in Chaucer's play, Troilus dies. Not that day, but like later Troilus dies and his 
It's just basically an epilogue that's like, and then Troilus died in battle and ascended to like the eighth sphere because of his courtly love and came to a greater knowing. Oh, yeah. Chaucer did that bit a lot. We gotta say, uh, the, uh... I mean, I'd hope Troilus dies eventually, because, you know, otherwise <laughs> he's, he's a vampire. A vampire. <laughs> yeah. uh, oh, what if Crescent was a vampire, too, and they just kept, like, running into each other throughout all time? Like, oh, oh, that's gotta be awkward. Hey. Oh, hey, 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 yeah. Haven't seen you since, uh, what was it, Troy? You remember Troy, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, that's the basics, and, um... Before I get into where it differed from Chaucer, I just, um, I have a couple essays I read. I'll put the sources in the description for this because I originally was going to read Chaucer's poem and then I was like, never mind, I'm going to listen to it in an audiobook. And then the audiobook was like eight hours long and I was like, just kidding, I'm going to find some other people who have done this. (laughs) Yeah, we have a toddler. Pandemics aren't that productive for us. Well, I just also, it was Chaucer, it was not Old English. Middle English. Middle English. There we go. It's after the French arrived, but before we, like, really settled on what vowels we want to use. <sighs> yeah, spelling was nonsense in Chaucer. Oh, it's it's crazy. Although when you hear it read aloud, it makes a lot more sense. Well, I assumed as much, but I, I just, I didn't, I was behind on my research. I didn't feel like listening to an eight-hour poem. That's fair. I gotta say, courtly love poems are some of my least favorite. Well, yeah, and so, and and that seemed to be one of the bigger things that got changed was this kind of, like, shifting of the courtly love idea, which I think is probably, as over time, the idea of courtly love, the, you know, shifting from the secret passionate love being the epitome and that you're never supposed to go all the way with it kind of started to die. Yeah, people got away from the whole uh, exploration of platonic, like, related to Plato, love, and were like, hey, look at these rich people, they want to do it. One thing I found interesting was that both essays mentioned Romeo and Juliet, and the other mentioned Antony and Cleopatra, which we have basically three kind of tragic loves, two of which die, one does not. One just breaks up. But for me, really, Troilus and Cressida kind of feels like a cynical Romeo and Juliet. Because you have this big love, this big romance that's like wooing, they get together, they get married, they consummate the marriage, it's all secret, it's special. But then it's like, if when Juliet got the news she was gonna marry Paris, she just went, okay! (laughs) And it was just very interesting to me that kind of contrast yeah that is i mean i gotta say it doesn't doesn't seem like a great ending i have to say re when i was listening to the play for the first time i was kind of like oh okay that's it that's what happened okay because you expect this like epic backdrop you know you have you have the trojan war as the backdrop yeah and this tragic love story like i mean you know how shakespeare goes like you knew this wasn't gonna end well for the couple but it was just kind of like and then they they broke up yeah it's it's you're like what you expect cressida's new bow to kill troilus on the battlefield and for her to yeah i kept waiting for troilus to die but he didn't yeah 
Or, geez, you expect, like, her to be like, don't fight, and then she accidentally dies in the battle. You know, something... Yep, nothing. ...contrived and dramatic. Yep, nothing. It was just kind of like, and then they broke up. Oh, yeah, and Hector died, too. Yeah, it was just kind of like, oh, what <laughs> Like, it literally just, like, Aeneas pops in, and it's just like, Troilus, Hector died, and Troilus is like, oh, no. Or face versa, I can't remember. It's pretty much just like someone pops in from off stage and is like, FYI, he dead. He dead? End of play. Oh no! <laughs> You're like, oh, okie dokie. There were a lot of moments in the play that just felt like there's a reason not many people know Troilus. <laughs> <laughs> Although I have to say, my favorite part was repeatedly throughout the whole play both sides ask is helen worth it and the answer is always no of course it is <laughs> is helen worth 10 years of war no i don't think so but my favorite time was like hector you know so basically the greeks send another message to troy and is like just give us back helen and we'll leave and egg or priam brings it to his sons and other key mm -hmm. figures is like, what do we think? And Hector's like, frickin' give her back. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is not worth it. At all. Hasn't been. Don't know why we've been doing it this long. And, you know, Paris is obviously like, oh, hey! Because, you know, that's his wife. But <laughs> Troilus is also like, oh, war, glory, honor, blah, blah, blah. And, and Hector literally goes... These are shallow arguments made by naive boys that make no logical sense. And yet you've convinced me. Let's keep fighting. And I'm just like... <laughs> <laughs> like, he spends, like, a whole soliloquy saying how bad their argument is. And then he's like, but it's fair. Okay. <laughs> I feel like he's just saying, like, I hate that our culture puts value on these things because this is super dumb. But, but that's okay. not what he said. One of my favorite parts of like, the story of the Trojan War is when they went to bring Odysseus to fight it, he was like, I don't, I don't want to. So he pretended to be crazy. And Helen was his sister-in-law. So if anyone knew... Yeah, Helen was like all of their sister-in-laws. And she, they still were like, this is dumb. Anyway. Yeah. Everyone should be like, this is dumb. Why are we fighting over Helen? Well, and especially also just... One last sidebar before I get into Shakespeare and Trosser, which is the point of this podcast, but I have, I have to let this out because every time I study anything involving the Trojan War, I am reminded that Paris is just the worst. Oh, he sucks. And like the whole play, you know, like Troilus is out coming back from fighting and is like, where the heck was Paris? And Pandrix is like, oh, he said he was going to go, but Helen didn't want him to, so he didn't. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> They're so awful. They're just such awful people. They're the worst. Now that I have that off my chest. One of the things that is pretty typical for Shakespeare they did was shorten the timeline. Yeah. In Chaucer, the two lovers got to know each other over a long period of time, at least several months, if not years. Probably months before the consummation, and then months afterwards meeting in secret. Yeah. So they had developed a relationship in Chaucer, and in Shakespeare it was like, should we bang? Yeah, oh no, we have to separate. And you're a little bit more like, okay, well, that was a fun one night stand. <laughs> You know? Yeah, it seems like back in the day, one night stands involved a marriage. 
call, you know, that you tell you got him in bed, dear. <laughs> well, I gotta marry her and then never see her again, because I got my other three wives. Well, I mean, you know, they didn't want to separate. And, and I think kind of shortening it, the timeline and the story. And also, I'm sure Chaucer did include some elements of the Trojan War, um, but most of the focus seemed to be just on Troilus and Crescent. So Shakespeare had to, like, pop in these random scenes with Achilles on top of the love story. Man, was there just, like, a season in, like, Elizabethan England where the Trojan War was really popular and he was like, uh, I gotta get something out? I mean, maybe. It'd be like him. Like, ah, oh, the Trojan War seems popular. I'll do that. Except instead of, like, oh, revenge... Revenge dramas are popular. I'm gonna make something super heady about what it means to hate people. Oh, the Trojan War is popular. I'm gonna, gonna write about this guy who breaks up with his girlfriend. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> and then Hector dies. <laughs> I think in shortening it, Shakespeare appears to have made a lot of the characters much, I don't wanna say more cynical, but just, that's the best term I can come up with right now because, like, Pandarus, he, like, thinks Cressida's great and all, but he's all about, like, helping Troilus get Cressida. That's his goal. Not to bring the two of them together for mutual benefit, to help Troilus get Cressida his niece. Although he does get a little weird at one point, like, calling Cressida pretty, and it's like, oh, but I can't think she's too pretty. She's my niece. And I'm like, stop reminding me oh, that you're related yeah, to yeah. her. The, anytime someone's like, oh man, she'd be so hot if she weren't my niece, I'm like, hmm, that's a, that's a weird thing. You, I don't like you now. Yeah. And like, when, <laughs> so Troilus hears, Troilus and Pandarus hear the news that Cressida has to get traded back. Pandarus is the one that delivers the news to Cressida because Troilus is still talking with Aeneas and maybe Paris. Pandarus comes in all distraught and Cressida goes, what's wrong, you know, what's the matter, uncle? <laughs> He's basically like, oh, I knew you were going to be the death of him. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? Also, <laughs> uh, that's not even foreshadowing because she's not. <laughs> it's true. And then at the same time, Troilus becomes more sex driven than his Chaucer counterpart. Yeah, I get that. Like, because in Chaucer, again, we have this overarching, like, courtly love yeah. idea. Like, Chaucer definitely has a moral stance he is trying to get across in his poem. Yeah, the whole, like, uh, by loving something, you come closer to the divine. Yes. I don't know that, that there really is much of a moral in this one. Yeah, it's big old shaggy dog, isn't it? Well, like, no one gets punished. And that's something that um, one of the uh, authors that I read actually commented on was that Cressida never gets punished for betraying Troilus. Yeah, that's what makes it seem like not a story. It's just, oh, he liked her and she liked him. And they got married and then they got separated. And then she... You know, was with other guys. Well, so one argument... It's, it's, it doesn't feel like a, a story being told. What I found interesting as I was reading it is... It, it's, it's a similar comparison to Romeo and Juliet, but what you have are two people dealing with awful circumstances yeah. in Shakespeare. And 
I mean, really, I think part of the reason it doesn't feel that satisfying is that it's real. You yeah. know? Because Troilus wasn't exactly, like, a good boyfriend for the half a minute he was. When they hear the news that Cressida's going away in Chaucer, they talk about it all night. And, like, Cressida... Cressid in, in Chaucer is more confident in her ability to talk her way back into Troy. Mm-hmm. To essentially, like, convince everyone to let her go back to Troy or, like, sneak back to Troy. She will be reunited with Troilus, and Troilus does not believe that. So he wants to just elope, but she has her honor to think of. Mm-hmm. And again, this is Chaucer. In Shakespeare, they have about five minutes before like literally during the like five to ten minutes of their talking Paris keeps busting in not busting in but shouting from off stage like hurry up Troilus I'm just like Paris (laughs) back off he's the worst I know uh, I get. I'm gonna get that it's like uh, when you you love a book and the adaptation to a movie's cutting everything out well and 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 so what you have is troilus comes in cressida's all distraught she's like in denial she's not going it's not gonna happen and he's just like it's done there's nothing we can do about it it's out of my hands it's out of our hands we can't do anything about it and all her questions he gives very short answers you know one to two words to all her questions and it's like this vast exchange of questions she has for him like when and blah blah you know all the details what's going to happen to us stuff like that and Troilus pretty much all he can give her is like I'll try to bribe a great guard to let me visit you every night basically being like I'll make sure to come doink you yeah one of the authors put it in a way that for Cressida that reaffirmed her initial hesitation of he super loved me while he was wooing me now he got what he wanted and it's not that big of a deal yeah because in Chaucer Troilus is in the room when the decision gets made that they will trade Crescent for Antinor. And he falls apart, overwhelmed with grief, almost passed out, like, but still kind of maintains as much of his composure as he can because he's trying to keep it secret. The only one in Chaucer that knows about Troilus and Cressida is Pandarus. Whereas in Shakespeare, it's clear that Paris and Aeneas, probably some other people, know. So Troilus was a little more freewheeling with, oh, hey, I'm going over to Cressida's house. Uh, yeah, he's a lot more freewheeling in a lot of ways. Yeah, and whereas Cressida and Chaucer, she's still pretty witty. She still has the same idea of, you know, men want the pursuit more than they want the relationship. But it's a little less sharp, a little less of a sharp edge to Cressida and Chaucer. And part of it just is that he had longer. I mean, the Shakespeare play, Epis, even if we're just looking at time to read it, the Shakespeare play is like, what, two and a half to three hours? Yeah. Chaucer is eight. Woo! Seven and a half to eight, and it's like just from what I understand from what I read in these essays, it is just Troilus and Cressida. That that's two Hamlets. Yes. Which again is why I didn't end up reading it. Also, the text I had cut out stanzas 
which was annoying. Anyway, the Cressida in Shakespeare is pretty, pretty sharp-witted, all kind of defenses up. You know, we really only see her kind of let her defenses down in front of Troilus when they're alone and in front of Diomedes when they're alone. And so you have to consider, and, and what they explore in more depth in Chaucer is that her father left. This did not leave her in a particularly good position. I would imagine She not. was an outcast. She was, you know, things could have gone really badly for her, except for the fact that Hector took pity on her and said he would protect her at court. So Cressida's already kind of guards up and then keeps her guards up because she doesn't want Troilus to get what he wants and then leave. And then while the leaving is kind of out of his control... His response to it just reaffirms, like, oh, he's good. Like, he, you know. And he's pretty much, like, uh, literally one of his lines when he finds out she has to leave is, like, how my achievements mock me. As though, like, having sex with Cressida was, like, an achievement. I mean, maybe she was really good. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. It's not Um, one of those rare achievements, though. Fun Xbox joke like to see Achievement Hunters episode on Cressida. Okay, so the essays I read kept talking about how Shakespeare was trying to paint Cressida as a whore. And I just never got that. I mean, I was a little bit like, dang, Cressida, like, wait one night. (laughs) But at the same time, when she calls back Diomedes, she calls him guardian. He's there to protect her in the Greek camp. Mm Mm-hmm. I think to understand the situation she faced in the Greek camp, her first introduction there, there everybody's pretty much like, ah, oh, you're pretty, and then like all of them kiss her. Agamemnon, Nestor, Achilles, Patroclus, Menelaus. And then when Menelaus tries to go in for a second kiss, she's pretty much like, I'm gonna mock you because your wife definitely left you for Paris. And then Ulysses doesn't kiss her because, basically, of his own design, it was going to be something that never happened. Like, you know, I won't kiss you until you want me to. And she's like, and if that never happens, he's like, well, okay. But that's her reception back to the Greek, well, not back, that's her reception to the Greek camp. Yeah, that's uh, extremely threatening. Yeah. So, like, you can kind of understand, now she's thrust back into this extremely vulnerable position. And... Yeah, she was in a city, and now she's in a war camp surrounded by aggressive men. Now, in Chaucer, when she comes back, it's just to her father. And, like, she just talks to her father. Like, she eventually meets all the other men, but, like... It's just to her father, and she just has a moment with her father. But, you know, even in Chaucer, like, literally, she says yes to Diomedes, and that's the last you see of her. Well, I'm gonna be honest. I don't think Chaucer was, uh, much of a feminist. But what I'm saying is, but there's still no punishment for her. Yeah. There's no, like, like, Troilus ascends to a higher plane of being because he loved of his great love. Yeah. Well, she betrayed that love. So she... I think they both understand to an extent that she was making the best out of the situation she found herself in. Because when you were retelling it, and I'm sure your retelling is pretty colored by your opinion, 
she was basic. She ba the play basically has her say, "Men don't care about relationships. Uh, they're in it for the chase." And then, you know, the men around her confirm that belief, and she doesn't grow attached to them because of it. And well, with- I think not only that, but like, just again, they didn't have time to grow attached to each other. No, not permanently attached. They essentially had their first date, had sex, and then broke up. So this is the story of Tinder. Yeah. <laughs> Trojan Tinder. But yeah, I just, I don't know. It's It was such an odd play to me because it was just like, oh, okay. This is it? We're done? All right. Basically... By shortening the timeline from Chaucer, by giving us such a shortened time span and such few glimpses into the characters, kind of all the fluff got stripped away from the characters. All this young knight in courtly love was stripped away from Troilus. You know, Pandarus being the secret go-between of the lovers. That he still served that function, but all the fluff stripped away. Also, he was way too horny for it. Well, he was, like, weirdly pumped about them having sex, too. Yeah. Pandarus was all around creepy. I gotta be honest. Pandarus was the creepy uncle. Yeah, I gotta be honest. You know, I don't think I would ever be terribly invested in my niece's sex life. It seems like a her business kind of thing. Well, yes, but you also wouldn't be in charge of making sure your niece had some sort of advantageous marriage. Oh, that's fair. But anyway, you know, and so, like I said, it's like all the fluff got stripped away and we were just kind of left with, like, it all kind of stinks. Yeah. Like, the whole situation, all of it. That was that was Shakespeare's gritty gonzo period. <laughs> look at how terrible this is. Look at this crap. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it's just like, one of the, one of the essays put it as, like, you know, Chaucer has Troilus ascend to this greater plane of understanding and existence. But, like, in Shakespeare, Troilus does not get to leave this world and ascend to a better place. He's just stuck there in war with a broken heart. Yeah. Yeah, so... It's like Hunter S. Thompson and Shakespeare wrote a play together. <laughs> it was a little bit like Shakespeare went through, like, a nihilist period right. of, like, Jesus. <laughs> Listen, Shakespeare went through through some things. Was, he, was he drafted at this point? <laughs> I don't think there was a war. There's always a war. <laughs> anyway, alright, so that's, that's, that's Troilus and Cressida. Wow, I'm gonna be honest, this is one Shakespeare play I don't ever care if I see. I mean, I'd, I'd still go. Because I'd be interested to see how my feelings change with a production. Yeah, that's fair. And what the production does with it. But I have to say, like, I listen to actors perform the play. Like, even then, I'm like, oh, here we go, battle, Troilus and Diomedes gonna fight it out. Oh, they're, they're both... It's, okay. Oh, Hector died. Oh, no. No. <laughs> like, But well, we liked Hector. <laughs> He also thought Helen was stupid. In conclusion, Helen and Paris are the worst. See you next time on Breaking Bart. (laughs) 
Thus ends another episode of Breaking Bard. Please join us next time for a special episode on Hamlet and grief. If you want to make sure you don't miss that or any future episodes, make sure to hit subscribe. If you like the podcast, please consider giving it a five-star review and sharing with your friends. For more Shakespeare fun in the meantime, check out my blog at ripegoodscholar.com or look me up on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at ripegoodscholar. You should also check out my new YouTube channel at youtube.com slash ripegoodscholar, where I just launched my first series on a Midsummer Night's Dream. See you next time, and remember, our court shall be a little academic, still and contemplative in living art.